0: First things first It's the DU General, Money bi am I'ma put you up on the schedule. Six to nine, eight weekdays. Not doing serious. Let's go. We got a lot to talk about. So much to pedal through. Unapologetically progressive. Tune to KBLA 1580 to get the mess. We're your ancestors favorite radio station. First, black on talk radio, left side of the nation. First. Me and Dominique de Prima go way back. Way tax. Smiley making sure the station stays black. Discussing all the issues in our community. We're hosted black and brown, and others find unity. So let's talk about it. Everybody can improve it. Digital underground, always down with the moon Come on, So we tune in. The first things first with the queen of black talk radio, Dominique de Prima. Go, sis. Go, sis.
1: Good morning, and God bless. I'm Dominique Deprima The show is called First Things First, and my first thing every single day, no matter what, giving thanks, giving praises, asking for blessings from the Most High, asking for the blessings of the ancestors and the elders, and let's go, let's do this, let's talk about it. We are KBLA Talk 1580. We are the only black-owned talk radio station west of the Mississippi and heard uh, nationwide. Uh, via app and as well as uh, syndication, limited syndication. In fact, we are so glad to have you here with us. Um, Our one, I typically start off the day looking to the left coast, what's going on in California and all along the uh, the shores over here. Um, hour two, we go national, international, and beyond. We do freestyle phones. In hour three, we do a deep dive with a person of interest, uh, topic of interest. Today, we will have the amazing artist uh, Ben Gillery, who is an actor, director, uh, producer, uh, who co-founded the Roby Theater with Danny Glover. And looking forward to that conversation. What is going on with Black Arts here uh, in LA and, and across the nation? Um have we bounced back? Hour two, we're doing the typical call me, call me, call me. Of course, it's wealth building Wednesday, so we'll meet a black owned or socially innovative, uh woman-owned small business. Um, that is one of my favorite things to do is just reminding us to recycle black dollars, especially in the holidays when we tend to spend a little more. Let's keep those dollars circulating where they can help our community. And of course, In the first hour, I typically have a partner in politics. We talk about what's going on. The reparations conversation, I I call it a comprehensive reparations conversation here on KBLA, is so important that we've taken it up a notch. Um, And that's because I feel like there's a lot of momentum um, and we're seeing change. We're seeing progress and we want to seize that progress and continue to push the line. um, And education is one of the ways we push the line. A lot of people, black people, I'm talking about, and progressives embrace reparations, but may not be aware of all of the different things that are going on around that topic. So we've launched something called Freedman Fridays. It's every Friday uh, in the second hour of the show. And I call it comprehensive because all comers, no matter what your camp, your philosophy, your history of fighting for or thinking about reparation you may be featured on Friday and in just to clear up any confusion our phone lines on this show are always open 800-920-1580 you are invited in we're doing a little preview of that today for our first hour Just um, to remind you to check out uh, Friday, but also because you can't, I feel like we can't talk about it enough and um, how we look with a reparations lens at so many of the other issues that we may think of as local uh, or, you know, personal issues. Joining me this morning, the lead organizer of the Coalition for a Just and Equitable California. Um, and uh, the American Redress Coalition of California, which are grassroots California-based organizations working for reparations and reparative justice for descendants of U.S. chattel slavery living in California. His organization is one of seven community organizations selected by the California Reparations Task Force to do community research and engagement for reparations. Chris Lodgson, good morning.
2: Good morning, good morning. Peace and reparations.
1: <laughs> Thank you. Yeah, and welcome back, by the way. It's been Thank a minute you. since Thank we so talked much. and um, hoping that it won't be quite so long next time. Um, you've no, you've yes. <laughs> yeah, You've been like really, um, you know, boots on the ground with what's going on here in California. Um, and, you know, we, we talk about it a lot, but I don't think we can talk about it enough. Give us right. your view of where we are now.
2: Wow. So first, thank you for the opportunity and thank you for keeping the focus and keeping the attention on this. As you said, we can't talk about this enough. Right now, we are in what we call and what I call largely a transition phase here in California, where we are about three or four months after the end of the state reparations task force's work that ended sometime in, you know, early in the summer, uh, where the task force produced a almost you know, 1100 page report with over 112 recommendations for what the state of California should do for reparations for descendants of U.S. chattel slavery. That report and those recommendations are now sitting on the governor's desk. They're sitting on the desk of the leader of the state senate. They're sitting on the desk of the leader of the, of the state assembly and among the state senators and assembly members themselves. So we're about three months after that and we're before the start of the 2024 legislative session where for the first time in U.S. history, for the first time in California history, we will have actual reparations bills, actual reparations legislation introduced into the state legislature for movement and advancement in 2024. So we're in a transition phase right now where we're between, you know, um, the end of the task force's work and before reparations bills. So this is a very, very important time. This is a very, very important part of our history. Right now, there are reparations bills being written, and those bills will be introduced within, you know, let's say the next 60 to 90 days.
1: I love the way that uh, you encapsulated that really um, easy to understand and really uh, thorough. The governor, when you say it's sitting on the governor's desk, that's because the governor needs to read it, not there's yeah. nothing for him to sign. I mean, these are recommendations which would have to be enacted, as you said, through people writing yeah. bills or uh, moving funds around, right?
2: That's, that's absolutely right. The report itself and the recommendations were transmitted to the governor. So the governor has them, and yes, they're on his desk for him to read and to consider. Uh, and then, uh, you know, within the next year or so, we expect that he will actually have reparations bills that will have been passed on his desk for him to sign. Um, Now, now one thing to mention is that we do have one reparations bill already, uh, and that is Senate Bill 490, which was introduced by State Senator Stephen Bradford, who I'm sure you're very familiar with out of the L.A. area. Uh, That bill would create the California American Freedmen Affairs Agency. You know, um, similar to your Freeman Fridays, right, uh, this is um, part of the creation of reparations infrastructure, as we as we call it. So this would be an agency in the place where people go to apply for reparations, go to get their claims processed, go to show that they're eligible and go to get the direct services that the state task force says that the descendants deserve in this state. So we have one bill already. Now, that bill won't move until 2024, um, and we expect that that bill among potentially between a half dozen to a dozen other reparations bills will be moved next year and eventually, as you say, on the governor's desk for him to actually sign.
1: Right, um, and, and th- I think that's one of the reasons why it's so important to talk about it right now Yeah, because the, I feel like lawmakers need to feel... Um, the momentum in our community that this is important to us, that a report is not enough. Um, But when we come forward, um, Chris, I want to get your take on that and also all of this polling that, you know, now suddenly it's become popular with mainstream media to poll and see whether people think it's a good idea. Is that really um, legit in terms of, you know, impacting uh, the actual manifestation of your recommendations and um, what do, you know, what do we need to be doing to address that? If anything, I mean, you know, I have my thoughts. I can't wait to hear yours. It's KBLA talk 1580.
0: More of first things first with Dominique DiPrima when we come forward. Your ancestors' favorite radio station, radio station, and your favorite morning show host. Let's get back to Dominique deprima right now. Right now.
1: Right now. Uh, talking with Chris Lodson. Um, he is lead organizer for Coalition for Just and Equitable California, among his many other hats that he wears as an organizer, specifically around this particular issue of reparations, which California has taken a leadership role in. I, uh, you know, I was thinking that why is this so important to me? Why is this so important to you? For me, it's not just about money, although I'm here for the money, right? I, I think if you owe me money, pay me, in the words of Rihanna. <laughs> but it's more than that for me. It's about uh, the the recognition and the um, admission of guilt by our country, our state, our cities, our counties, our private and public entities um, and the healing community-wide. So not just about me. Oh, do I get a check? Do I get this? But can we level up our community um, with so, some of the resources that we had before and that we should have been having all along? Why is this so important to you, Chris? Because certainly you um, have devoted a lot of time and energy to it.
2: I love that question. And thank you for that question. It is, you know, it's largely what you said. It is, It is largely about, you know, doing what's right for our ancestors, we were, and our ancestors were, and our families were, and our people were, uh you know, treated very badly, right? I think that's an understatement, right? We were, you know, property of other people for gener- generations. We were harmed, we were done wrong, and we are owed. And whenever there's a debt owed, that debt must be paid. And, We are, if anybody's owed by this government and by this state, it's us. So it's partly about doing what's right for my ancestors, for my family, for my people. Um, But it's also, I think, important because and important for us as a people, because we have a historic opportunity right now. And I usually say this when I talk to groups and when I talk to communities and when we're walking up and down the neighborhoods and we are going to the parks and we're handing out flyers or we have community events and we're talking about reparations. I usually say to folks, you know, stop what you're doing. Listen to what I'm about to say. Every single one of you, every single one of us is living and sitting in a history book right now. People are going to be reading and writing and talking about what you did and what we did right now, ten years from now, twenty years from now, fifty years from now. That is because California is already the first state to create a reparations task force, as you know as you may know. But California will be the first state to do reparations. So we're in a historic moment. We have a historic opportunity and we cannot miss this moment. So that's also
3: why it's important to me.
1: Yeah. Well, it's well said. Let's go to Ronnie calling us from Orange County. Good morning, Ronnie. Jumbo.
3: Jumbo, hello. Uh, This question is specifically for you, Chris. Chris, um, executives of... Hello, my brother. Uh, uh, This question is pertaining specifically uh, to executives of municipalities across the United States that run the clock out... uh, California has had so many initiatives, and we have a very unique system for getting things on the ballot and getting it uh, into law. I'd like to know specifically, here's the question, um, and I have a follow-up. Uh question is, what, Chris, can we do to keep our executive, which is our governor, from running out the clock and leaving office and not signing it, just like the John Lewis bill, and the president may leave office and not sign it.
1: Well, he, it'd have to pass before the president can sign it. It has to pass both chambers of Congress. But your point is taken. Um, Chris? Yeah.
2: yeah, great, great, great question. I think this is something that we have to be very, very careful and very, very serious about. So I think the first thing that we can do is make sure that we get the bills actually passed and on the governor's desk. I think that's the first First thing, and, and, you know, we have two battles, let's say, two general battles ahead. The first battle we have is the battle of the state assembly, and then, and then, and then we have the battle of the state senate. So that means that we have to get the bills through the state assembly and the state senate. So we have to get the bills on the governor's desk. I think that's the first thing that we have to do. We also have to do those things in a way where there's overwhelming and majority plus support for those bills so that when they get on the governor's desk he knows that that uh, overwhelming majority of the state senators the state assembly members and the people of california so, support this so that there's pressure on him coming from the bottom up from the actual people who want this to actually happen so i think that's the first thing that's that's the first thing that we can do to make sure that the governor doesn't um not sign the bills let's say secondly though I think this is important to hear also. This is a fight that I think we will be fighting and and work that we we will be doing through next year, probably through the year after that too, and maybe even an additional year also. So you should think of this as a multi-year project, and this may actually transcend and go across government or governor administrations too. And so I think what we have to be very intentional about is building the kind of political power that we need to make sure that when this governor gets the bills on his desk, he he signs them. And if there is another governor in office when bills get on their desk, that they sign them too. I have a saying. I think we say this a lot too. It ain't over until we win.
1: <laughs> yeah, uh, Ronnie, you get, you said you had a follow up, so let's do it.
3: Thank you, Dominique. However, um, like I said, this question was specifically for Chris, and Chris capitalized. Both of my questions in one. It's a long haul, and that makes me feel better, just like a fight I fight here to keep Orange County blue.
1: Well, uh, good job, know. by the way, on that fight. Uh,
0: <laughs>
1: it's a tough one out there in the OC. So, yes, yes. I mean, I think what Ronnie asked you and your answer leads right into what I teased before the break, which is what – role do all of these polls have i have tweeted and i believe that reparation should not be a popularity contest it should be right. um based on you know what is owed a debt that is owed that said when you talk about getting lawmakers to com- get things across the finish line out of committee and then getting governors especially ambitious young governors to sign them that that's probably where the polling comes in. Well, what are your thoughts about that and, and what do we do about it?
2: Yeah, so I think there's a couple of things to say on this. First, you know, I I have been tracking and following the polling that's been coming out. There hasn't been a lot of polling. Um, so, you know, uh, over the work of the task force, over the time that the task force worked, the task force worked with UCLA Bunch Center uh, to get its own polling done and to produce that polling, I think that polling and the the results of that polling is actually in the final report of the State Reparations Task Force. I know it's on the UCLA Bunch Center's website for sure through the Black Policy Project. Um, and so there's, there, there's been some, what you may think of as internal you know, polling done by the State Reparations Task Force among Black folks in California and, of course, also among other folks in California, too. There was also the polling that... Um, The the uh, IGS um, uh, and, you know, Berkeley did recently that was covered by a bunch of media outlets, you know, you know, and then I think there's going to be other other polling, too. I think the the point is that public opinion is going to be a factor in how successful we are for reparations legislation in 2024 and beyond. I think that's that that is something that we cannot ignore. I think it's something that we should not ignore either, because I think that. When people actually hear the case for reparations that we make, I think people actually are more likely to support reparations. So I think it is going to be a factor. And, of course, as you mentioned, you know, for legislators, especially in an election year, which 2024 is, legislators are going to want to know, and I think rightfully so, what their constituents and their people think about the things that they may be asked to vote on or take a position on. So I think that's important. But I think your first point is even more important, which is that this is the right thing to do. This is the right thing to do. And sometimes, a lot of times, especially for our people, the right thing to do is not popular. It's not popular all the time, most of the time, to do the right thing for Black folks, especially the Black folks whose ancestors built this, this country. So right now, we need legislators and lawmakers and policymakers and government officials who are bold, who are courageous, who are actually leaders. I ask, you know, some some sometimes I think about you know, why why is it that someone who runs for office actually runs for office? Like, why do you even go there? Who who actually are you? Are you are you a leader? <laughs> are you a person who is actually trying to make change, or are you just you know listening to what your constituents say and not actually you know trying to trying to do the right thing all the time even if that right thing is is in disagreement with what your constituents say so right now i think we need bold strong leaders who are willing in the state senate and the state assembly and in the governor's office to do the right thing no matter what
1: yeah well i mean i think the issue with that is sometimes people get in office and what they intended when they set out to run for office changes because you don't know when what you don't know when you get there there's lobbyists and other pressures and oh yeah systems of um you know systems of governance that you didn't even dream of when you weren't in that space i notice people True. you know who come to office as activists or as idealists you know they they have various outcomes depending on how they're they're able to navigate all of those pressures.
2: I think that's right, and I and I I think um you know and you know I would like to think that most probably not all and I'm, and you know and I'm this is this is my thinking here, but I I like to think that most definitely not all folks who run for office actually made that decision because they wanted to make some kind of change, right? You know you you know it's it's running for office anybody that's that's running for office. That's trying to run for office can tell you it's not easy. All right, you know there's 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 a lot that that goes into it. There's a lot of personal and professional sacrifice on you and your family. So I like to think that most of the people who who run for office actually want to make some kind of positive change for the people in their communities. Whatever they think that positive changes. This reparations legislation and movement and effort here in California for reparations legislation is going to test, I think, every single assembly member and every single senator and folks in the governor's office, too. We got this news, traffic, an and sports
1: right here, um, uh, Chris. We'll continue with Chris Lodgson when we come forward on KBLA Talk 1580.
0: She's reclaiming her time on KBLA Talk 1580. More First Things First with Dominique DePrima when we come forward. Org. Thanks for waking up with Dominique DePrima on KBLA Talk 151880.
1: Yeah, the early bird gets the reparation. Uh, Chris Lodgson is with me this morning, lead organizer for Coalition for Just and Equitable California. You were breaking down uh, before news traffic and sports, Chris, the role of public opinion. And um, I had to go to news traffic and sports. It's a hard stop, but I wanted to no have you finish that <laughs> point.
2: <laughs> Thank you, and I, I appreciate that. And the only the only other thing I add to what I was saying is, you know, I think as we said, you know, public opinion is gonna is gonna matter. But right now, we need legislators, lawmakers, policymakers, government officials, state senate, state assembly, and folks in the governor's office to be bold, to be c- courageous, to actually lead and be leaders, and do the right. Thing. This is the right thing to do. Paying this debt is the right thing to do for the descendants of persons who were enslaved in this country, those of us who are who are living here in California specifically. This is the right thing to, to do, and this is the right time to, to do it. It is long overdue, and we have a historic opportunity, as we were saying earlier.
1: I think so. Um, well... We, I wasn't really planning to go here, but we may as well. They're in the chat arguing on. about uh, on YouTube, arguing about uh, this concept of lineage-based uh, reparation, and I know you're, you know, a, a big supporter of that. Oh yeah. Um, and the well, uh, let's see. Somebody said, um, can't even get it. Someone said, here, let's let's check it out. Um, Nita says no. Taj Marie says the legislation of California is harm-based. It is not based upon the specificity of lineage. That information needs to be clarified for transparency purposes. What's your response to that?
2: That's completely false. (laughs) Um, So uh, if Taj is talking about the uh, legislation that is in uh, the, the state assembly now, which is Senate Bill 490 sitting in the Assembly Judiciary Committee right now, um, you can just google that bill look up the eligibility part and read it it says um, this is for african americans who are descendants of persons enslaved in the united states or the descendants of um free blacks who were living in the united states before the year 1900 that's literally what the legislation says literally so that's completely false um, i appreciate the discussion and the conversation in the chat though and i appreciate everybody's comments because i think this is important so you know who would be eligible for reparations in California it's as we just said those of us who are california residents for at least 6 months who are descendants of persons enslaved in the united states or the descendants of free blacks living in the us before the year 1900 why but, is that yeah for 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 a number of reasons first the original bill to create the reparations task force was very specific about that. Actually, at the coalition, we actually wrote the language in the law that created the State Reparations Task Force that says special consideration for African Americans who are descendants of persons enslaved in the United States. And that that was always the original intent. Of yeah, the and we can, in the we can go
1: deeper on that because, you know, yes, there's sir. lots of finer points within that point that we can talk about. But I think, and I don't know, Taj Marie, but I think the reason people say that it's harm based is because the task force broke it out into specific areas, housing, you know, that's based on um, the suffering harm in a specific area. So I think that's why someone would say harm based. Right. I mean, there's um, housing, there's the medical, there's all these different categories within uh, reparation. According to yeah, the way I, it's delineated by the um, by the task force,
2: yeah, I I don't know if I would agree with that um, that framing of it. Um, so you you are definitely correct that the task force did identify different. I think twelve different areas of harm. I, I know you had Chair Moore on your show recently, who, who you know I, I believe talked about some of those areas of harm. But let's be clear, the task force also in their report, not just in the legislation that's in you know in the uh, assembly right now. But in the actual report itself, in chapter seventeen, it has a whole section that says eligibility, and it says this is for descendants of persons enslaved in, in the in the United States and the descendants of the free blacks living in the U.S. prior to the year 1900. And I think the, but I I think you're onto to something, Dominique, because the task force starts with slavery as one of the harm areas and then goes into eleven, twelve other harm areas. And the idea though is that this is about slavery. And the things that came after slavery, specifically the impact of those things on the descendants of U.S. slavery. So, yes, while the task force did break out the 12 or so different specific harm areas, um, that is not to be understood as a way to include people who are not descendants of U.S. slavery as recipients or benefits of reparations because of those harm areas. Yes, there are multiple harm areas specified. That was the job of the task force. The task force actually was required by law to actually look at the different things that came after slavery, the lingering, quote, badges and incidents or the afterlife or the aftereffects, the things that came after slavery, but specifically, the law also says those things need to be understood as how they impact the descendants of U.S. slavery. So, with respect to the folks in the in the chat who are thinking that, um, that's just literally incorrect. You can read the task force's report, chapter seventeen, to see that, and you can read the actual legislation itself, Senate Bill four hundred and ninety, and you can see that literally.
1: Um. <laughs> Uh, this chat is distracting me. Let me stay focused. On, I mean, it's good to be distracted. I'm glad you guys are having the conversation. Yes, um, yes. You know, we these are the conversations we need to have. That's why I call it comprehensive. And um, my my goal is for us to understand everything that's out there and to continue to build on that. There are plenty of people in the reparations movement and outside that say, cities counties states should back off they should not be doing anything <laughs> this should be handled on a federal level you chuckle why why um why that reaction
2: uh i love this question i love this question so much because so I just mentioned that, you know, we helped write the, 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 the final, the final version of the law that created the state reparations task force. And I just mentioned that part of what we wrote into the language was specificity around descendants of persons who were enslaved in the United States. That's clear. That's, that's, that's there. We also, though, wrote in a clause to the bill that created the state reparations task force. By the way, it's a uh, AB 3121, Assembly Bill 3121, if folks want to look that up. Somewhere toward the end of the bill, it says something like, uh, you know, This effort in California should not, must not, will not be uh, understood to conflict with or preclude or get in the way of or be a replacement for federal national reparations. And that was important for us to write in because we rightly understood that there was a risk of the federal government and other entities at at the national level saying, well, you know, this is a state thing. This is something for the states to do. This is a, a, a state problem or a city problem or a county problem. So we recognized that risk early on, and we actually wrote language in the bill itself to make sure that pol- policymakers at the national level understood that, no, this is not a replacement and that, yes, the federal government owes a national reparations program for descendants of U.S. slavery. But I, I, I think there's another point to make here, too. As we understood that risk, we also understood the opportunity on the other side of that risk, too. So I've, I've made this point, of, you know, in the last few few months, and, I've, and, and I'll, I'll be saying it more. I think the best thing to happen for national federal reparations in the last, let's say, two years is California reparations. Do you think we would be talking about reparations as much as we are now without a California reparations effort? Without a California reparations movement, without cities and counties across the country actually moving for reparations, we would not. I wholeheartedly believe we would not even be talking about this as much as as we are now if it wasn't for the work that folks are doing locally, I mean, countywide, yeah. I was just going to
1: say because I think Evanston and the, and the proliferation of you know municipalities that are jumping in um, has also moved the needle. But yeah, absolutely. To me. That's the major changes, whether you like them or don't, you know, um, you know, cannabis legalization, marriage equality. Those things have right. happened state by state and they've right. built momentum to become uh, to become federal issues, if not federal so I mean, law. Like yeah. want, Go ahead.
2: One, 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 one more point on this, too, because I, I think you're absolutely right. Then that, that was actually the, the other point that I was going to make, that change in this country over the last, I'd say, 50 years has come from the bottom up has come from the local, the county, the states up. It's actually been the locals, the counties, the states pushing the federal government. And let's be clear, the federal government has been sitting on a reparations commission bill since I was like five years old, since like 1986, 1989. The, the federal government has been doing nothing, literally nothing for the past almost you know, 40 or so years. And And so the idea that we're going to continue to depend on the federal government to lead on this, I think is not realistic.
1: Talking with uh, Chris, Chris Lodson, and you're welcome in the convo, 800-920-1580, 800-920-1580. I'm also excited because I just realized our wealth building Wednesday today is our own miles low So uh, with a new project. So a lot of good things coming today, but don't be scared, 800-920-1580. Get in this conversation with me, Dominique DePrima, Chris Lodgson, and... The future of reparations. Let's do it. KBLA Talk
0: fifteen eighty. Say the quiet part out loud. Out loud. KBLA Talk fifteen eighty.
1: And I'm uh, talking today with Chris Chris Lodson um, and you. If you want to get in, 809-20-1580. 809-20-1580. He is uh, the lead organizer for the Coalition for a Just and Equitable California, and uh, covering a lot of stuff here. But um. You know, the arguing in the chat brings up, uh, (laughs) you know, the conversation about why is it that these various groups um, and different generations, by the way, within the reparations movement are at often at odds? Mm.
2: Uh, That is a great question, too. You know, I think right now there is a generational transition and generational shift going on um, where I think, you know, there is a new generation a millennial and 21st century generation of reparationists and reparations advocates and supporters rising and taking our rightful position, I think, in leadership of the movement. Um, I think, you know, and I've, I, and I've said this publicly, I think we are the most successful reparations generation just in our last, you know, four or five years. Um, you know, since the days of Cali House. Since the the, the the days of Cali House's. But it was which was what, like eighteen
1: forty or something?
2: Yeah. Uh, uh, <laughs> eighteen you know, the the eighteen eighties and eight and eight and eight eighteen nineties. So, you know, after the end of the Civil War where, you know, our great ancestor Cali House led what is still I think the largest movement for reparations among ex enslaved ancestors themselves. So, you know, I, I I think in the last, you know, five or, or so years Where folks like myself and others, and really, this is actually across all generations. To be honest with with you, too, because as a part of this new 21st century movement for reparations, we have folks who are of the Boomer generation, of the Generation X's. Yeah, I mean, a
1: couple. I mean, but a couple things about that, Chris. First of all, of course, the young generations should always take up leadership. Um, You know, and I, I, I agree with the success. You know, the incredible success of the last you know, several years, whatever it is, five, seven, that said that you're obviously standing on the shoulders of the Charles Ogle trees and, you know, and the Cali houses that did what they did. Number one, it doesn't happen, you know, in California without a Shirley Weber, who's not exactly a a millennial. And I see division within that new generation of leadership too. Um, I, you know, I feel like it's one of the reasons I want to have these conversations, so folks can hear each other out, and and people that are aren't aren't even in those circles can hear the you know the robust um, discussions that are that are going yep. on that they might not even be aware right. of.
2: Yeah, I I, I I think that I think that's the right approach ultimately. And just let me say one one or, one or two more things on this too. First, I do think there are some serious disagreements with. Uh, You know, the the generation of folks who were doing reparations work prior to the work that we've been we've been doing specifically on the question of who should be eligible for reparations and whether reparations should be financial and direct financial to the folks whose ancestors built this country. We've taken the position that this is specifically for the descendants of U.S. slavery and that we deserve direct, direct, direct financial Compensation, And that is a that is a disagreement with the work that's been done prior to us. But also, I also say that unity does not mean uniformity. So it is it is, I, I think, healthy in many ways to, to have these dis, disagreements. I think we can have them in a healthy way. And I think it's also important to be able to work with sometimes, sometimes to be able to work with folks who you disagree with on the things that you agree on.
1: Right, um, talking with Chris Lodgson, we're gonna squeeze in a bunch of stuff before we uh before we run out of time in this hour, and speaking of the you know folks that have been working on this for a long time that you may agree or disagree with uh uh attorney Nkichi Taifa will be on Friday on uh Freedman Friday, so Feel free to call in, agree, disagree, clarify, and build uh, that operational unity that uh, Chris is talking about where we can. It's KBLA Talk 1580.
0: KBLA Talk 1580 is an intervention. When we come, we forward, come forward, includes you. KBLA Talk 1580, turning pain into power. power. Talk radio legally that sounds anything like this? We didn't think so. You're listening to Unapologetically Progressive. KBLA Talk 1580.
1: A lead organizer for Coalition for Just and Equitable, California, Chris Lodgson is with us. And Chris, uh, before we try to squeeze in all these questions we I have for you in the <laughs> last four minutes, let's uh, let folks know how to contact you.
2: at uh, I- CJEC Official on Instagram, on Twitter, on Facebook, on TikTok, on YouTube. That's at CJEC Official, www.cjec official.org. Please go to the website, sign up for our free monthly California Reparations newsletter and text message updates. That's www.cjec official.org.
1: Good stuff. Okay, so. Um, When it comes to the H.R. 40, where are you on that? Uh, I know some folks are really pushing for Biden to do an executive order. I think it's unlikely before an election, Uh, just like I'm skeptical that Governor Newsom will sign anything because clearly he wants to be president. Um, What are your thoughts (laughs) on that?
2: So on H.R. 40, I think H.R. 40 is um, not a strong bill. Uh, I think we don't need it anymore. Um, I think we need something much stronger. I think the California Reparations Task Force actually did the work of HR 40, and I think the federal government just needs to actually do a reparations bill with actual reparations. I don't think we need a study bill at the federal level anymore, especially because of what California did. So,
1: you think they can extrapolate from the research in California to find, figure out how that applies to all fifty states?
2: Absolutely, the State Reparations Task Force final report is actually every chapter is actually broken down from a from a national perspective and then a state of california perspective also so i think the the federal government can just incorporate by reference what california did and just get to the money
1: okay on a a municipal level city and state you know would have been nice to see more folks at meetings i know in la um they're trying to get people to fill out the survey of you know what they want from reparations or what their experiences are right which is what the task force california task force did find it to find out what the harm is um, and I know they're not getting the response they should it's blackexperiencela.com by the way um, does that worry you that we're not getting the kind of response that that we want for these efforts
2: no it doesn't worry me right right now um, I think we have a lot of work to do though and I'm very happy and very you know um, you know supportive of the work that everyday black folks are doing every single day to actually raise awareness and build support in California for reparations. So I'm not worried now, but I do know that we have a lot of work to do and more people to reach.
1: All right. When you, when you come back on Freedman Friday, we'll do a deeper dive on that lineage because you know I yeah. got questions and <laughs> agreements and disagreements is all good. Nah, um, <laughs> I'm not going to throw that at you with one minute to go, though. I want to um, ask you, what should we be doing to turn around public opinion, uh, even within our own communities?
2: So um, I think among black folks we're we're you know 80 to 80 plus percent of black folks agree with reparations yeah. so I think it's more about folks who are not black and so I so the first thing that we're asking folks to do is actually First, connect to current, accurate, and good California reparations information. So being informed with good information, I think, is the first step for folks in our community and for other communities, too. As we just mentioned, we have you know a free newsletter and free text message updates that go out. We are doing community meetings. We just did one in L.A. at the Solar Beehive, where we help folks trace their ancestry. Folks told us, you know, it's hard to find their ancestors. Well, we actually were just doing it. Um, but also, we're asking folks to know who their legislator is and Tell their legislators, reach out to your state senator, reach out to your state assembly member, and tell them that you support reparations, that you want them to support reparations, and that you're going to use whether or not they support reparations in your decision to vote for them in
1: 2024. Mm. Chris Lutzen, thank you so much for joining me on this Wednesday morning. Pleasure. All right. We've got uh, Wealth Building Wednesday. We're continuing with your phone calls. If you got something else to say, come on with it. And, of course, uh, we've got our deep dive a lot straight ahead on KBLA Talk 1580.